when you're when you're an owner of a practice, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the practice of medicine becomes easy and dealing with your staff, very, very difficult challenge. And then becoming a larger independent group with multiple physicians makes it somewhat better. Um, but, you know, fighting the daily business battles is a challenge. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Samuel Brown of Brown Fertility in the state of Florida. And before I get into my conversation with Dr. Brown, where we talk a lot about the business of independent practices, a lot about the economics of independent practices, profit margins, partnership track, the advantages that Dr. Brown believes they have over network groups. Before I get into that conversation, I'm going to do today's shout out. And that is going to be to Dr. Gary Frischman of the other Brown Fertility, Brown University's Fertility and REI division. And the reason for that is because we, well, two Browns, why not? And we also talk a lot about the fellowship program uh, or just people in fellowship and options for them after. And I've worked with Dr. Frischman on, on his thoughts about fellows and career trajectories after the fact. So that's today's shout out. In my conversation with Dr. Sam Brown of a completely different Brown Fertility, his independent practice group in Florida, we really dig into some of the, the realities in terms of economic realities, the responsibilities of being a business owner, the personality types for whom it makes sense for. So if you're earlier on in your career and or you're in independent practice and thinking of how you're going to keep it going for the next time. I think this is really useful. And conversely, if you're in academia and network, I think you can see some of the ways that uh, Dr. Brown has painted the advantages and disadvantages. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but it's, it's laid out pretty thoroughly in this episode. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sam Brown. Dr. Brown, Sam, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. Glad to be here. We're going to talk today about your group, which is Brown Fertility, and what it is like to be an independent practice in 2021, what the future for independent groups are, what, what you see as the, the advantages, and, and then maybe some disadvantages too. We'll explore that. But give us some background of how you started your own group. How did you come to make that decision? That's a great question, Griffin. You know, I, coming out of the Jones Institute in Norfolk, Virginia, very institutionalized, Johns Hopkins-based setup where they had the first IVF baby in the nation. I, I joined a large group, an independent group, and was very fortunate to have high volume, do a lot of this um, for many years. And um, I saw doctors come and go from our group and, and seeing how the stressors that a large independent practice had. And, and then um, I departed and joined another group, a large group that was part of IntegraMed, that was a uh, owned was a where it was a, owned by a company basically, and even though the doctors did have some flexibility, I, I was able to be exposed. I worked in that for three years or four years or so, um, and then I broke free and started my own independent practice. So I, I do have experience on both sides of the stick, 
And um, there's definitely pros and cons to both. No doubt about it. Well, it sounds like you've got experience in multiple facets. And I, I keep finding myself having to make the distinction, even though I've made the distinction a thousand times and I've even done it in writing, I still need to go back and correct myself every time I talk about private practice versus academic practice, let's say that within private practice, we now have independently owned private practice, and then we have network affiliated private practice. Exactly. You're right. There's a, there's a third group. There's a four, there's actually uh, four groups. There's your um, equity firm or large corporation owned fertility practice. There's your independent practices, but you're right. There's fully academic physicians that are in part of a academia and there's academic physicians that are kind of a quasi between academia and independent practices. So there's really four different ways to go, to be honest. You're exactly right. That's true. You can split academics. We talked about that on the show with Dr. Eric Foreman and Dr. Michael Alper, I believe. So, so we've still got the private side and the academic side, but you can split each of those uh, two ways. And it sounds like you have practice with academic, with independently owned private, and with the larger equity network. Am I categorizing yeah. that correctly? Yes, I've kind of experienced all four of them. So at one point you decide, okay, of the four that I've experienced, this is the one that I want. Why not the other three? What led you to choose the four? Yeah. And, you know, just from my own experience, not speaking for others, you know, what I I was pretty happy coming out of fellowship, joining a, um, a large non-academic um, uh, individual self-sustaining practice. I enjoyed that. It was, it was like a second fellowship and this independent practice where they kind of did their own thing. And, and there was some facets in those practice you liked that were in, because you were used to them in academia and, uh, to some degree and others you didn't. Like you're, wow, that's kind of weird. Is that just money-driven type weird things that they make you do? And, or the culture of that practice. And, um, but I enjoyed it. I had, there was collegiality. There was, ed, for, it's like a second fellowship, you know, when you first come out of, of training. Um, so the independent practice, they have more control and, um, and generally they make a little more money, you know, than, than some of the, a lot of the other practices. But, um, then when I changed, uh, I, I needed, uh, for me, it wasn't about money. It was more um, autonomy and joining a large institutional practice. Eh, it was less money and less autonomy. So I, I was still okay with that. I didn't mind making money for the man. I didn't mind that at all. You know, I just wanted to be comfortable and have a sense of security. So I didn't mind working hard for others, you know, per se. And I, I, I was actually okay with that. I could go home and could sleep a little better. And there was good in that. It made a decent income. I wasn't shooting for the stars. I just wanted a good income. And, and then it became a little bit of a pressure, you know, where um, we went through a phase where males versus female doctors, there was a pressure there where male physicians got a little more threatened, you know, that, that the, the owners of practices would kind of threaten you, like, hey, your job's not so secure here. We're going to replace you with a younger female, more vibrant female. So you felt a sense of insecurity. Um, and I think we've gone through that phase. I don't think that phase is still, still there, but that was a phase where you need a sense of security to go with, you know, making a living. And then ultimately, uh, and, and I didn't mind working on protocols that I, you know, if I worked for other people or other institutions, if they have protocols that didn't quite jive with my feelings, 
I was okay with that because you know there's multiple ways to do things. It's not there's not one way to do things. I came to that realization, and for me, then starting my own practice independently, um, yeah, it was it was all different altogether as well. It, it was uh, you definitely don't have um, uh, collegiality. You don't have people to lean on when you have those stressful moments, which we all have. And, it's a little difficult, but you'd normally reach out, you know, to your friends at other centers to, to, for advice. And, and But, uh, you know, starting out on uh, independently is a little bit tough. And and the business side does bite. You know, you, you, then you start realizing just, man, the, the business side is a lot more than I thought. You know, there's contracts that have to be signed. There's um, staff that's got to be fed, you know. Uh, the pressures, you know, there's good times and there's bad times and whoo. When you're when you're an owner of a practice, you know all of a sudden the, the, the practice of medicine becomes easy, and dealing with your staff becomes a nightmare or is a very very difficult challenge. And then becoming a larger independent group with multiple physicians makes it somewhat better. Um, but you know fighting the daily business battles is a challenge. There's a little more financial reward. Um, you know there's always the argument: is that financial reward worth it? Is it better to just be in a group and you know, not deal with the aggravations of running a business. And there's always that argument. And it could be that it's, it could be a draw with the financial side of the reward. I know uh, owners of independent practices that do a lot better than they would in a group. And I know some that do considerably worse than they would do in a group. And so it not, not all doctors are, are, are built for it. It definitely takes a certain personality because it, it's, it's strange, you know, as physicians, I think, but in general, physicians and nurses, we're pleasers. I think part of our personality subset is that we're pleasers. And man, when, you, when you're in the setting of being a uh, business administrator, it's a different hat where it's not a good place to be a pleaser. And you're right. I've seen physicians who have that strong, pleasing mentality not do well running a business. Um, it, it definitely takes a it took me a, a lot of change and development because I, I was that typical physician that just wanted to be a pleaser. And man, uh, being in management, that doesn't work so well. What are some examples that, that can you think of some examples off the top of your head of where you had to calibrate your personality? Of, you know, I'm, I'm used to catering people when I'm talking yeah. to patients, but now I've got to make some decisions. Can you think of some examples that come to your head? Um, two, two come to mind. Just I'm not sure if this answers the question completely, but Number one is um, staff. When staff comes to you and they, every year they want to raise, and uh, you know, as a pleaser, you you just give them what they want, and then after a while you realize this is going to bankrupt the business. Yeah, and you have to have a systematic, regulated way to give raises to staff and physicians, because every year they come at you. Hey, where's my raise? And we're like, hey, it was a bad year. You can't have it. Then they quit. So learning how do you keep how, how do you keep staff, you know, without pleasing them this way, especially financially? Or, and the other way is like corrections, when they make mistakes. You know, we all make mistakes. Uh, doctors and staff, we all make mistakes. That's part of life. And learning to not so much be a pleaser and say, oh, it's okay. And actually writing them up and reprimanding and educating to a level where they're not so angry that they quit is also very much a challenge. That was one of the bigger challenges for me, was learning how to um, correct staff or, or educate staff, uh, onboarding of staff. Very challenging. Um, 
all of those could be tied to a, a, a well, they can all be linked together, I suppose, those different challenges having to do with personnel and how you evaluate their performance, particularly as related to compensation, like you brought up. Have you come up with that system for giving raises? Or are you still working on it? Still work. It's a work in progress for sure. And I, I'll try to model. I've learned for me, my answer is I've tried to default. Like I, um, I've seen how hospitals do it and, and I hire business level people who have experience in business. Most of the time we'll model ourselves after a hospital system that's usually effective. Like for me, uh, I think where I'm at locally, the Mayo Clinic is a very effective model and, and learning how they do um, their basic business practice of raises and, and corrections and uh, their model's good. And most hospitals have a good model set in place, a little better than a smaller practice would have, typically. I'll give the listeners some other model to consider, too. And have you ever heard of open book management or read The Great Game of Business? I have not. So uh, it's, I want to also clarify to the listeners, look, we're a, we're a marketing and business development firm. We're business development and marketing advisors. We're not human resources advisors. I'm just sharing my perspective as a business owner of what we're going through. And I also haven't cracked this nut either, Sam. I'm, I'm still working on it myself for to, to have that system. But what I did decide that I want it to do is I want it to be related to the performance of the overall company and the ethos of open book management and great game of business is that everyone in the company either meets their goal and gets bonused or they don't. Now that doesn't, ha that doesn't totally address the, the schema of individual raises, but it could for some time if this keeps coming up for people. And the premise is that uh, the group is is educated on on how to share their books and what to share. Essentially, you're sharing you're sharing the big numbers. You're not sharing individual salaries in in almost every case. I've never heard of anyone sharing individual salaries. I think that would be a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. But they they do share. Hey, this is our payroll expense. This is our office expense. This is what we pay for toilet paper. And here, this is the the revenue coming in. And then there's a bottom line percentage which is nobody gets bonused on. And if we do less than this, nobody gets bonused. And then if we do more than this, then everybody gets a percentage of, of their salary. So we're working on implementing that now. I don't want to consult anyone on it because we're, we're still figuring it out and doing it, but it's something for people to look into if they're interested. And I'll be able to give people a much better report this time next year. And, and just to further that, I, you've touched on something that's very important. I, in my mind, in, in running a business, um, and just as an experience that I've had that may help the listeners, uh, is uh, my administrator. I have a really good administrator. He's an MBA. And um, when he came to practice, he saw that we were doing some unhealthy practices where when I started, my goal as a naive business owner, when I came into the practice was, man, everyone's got an incentive plan. Everyone has a plan where if they hit a certain marker above that, they get bonus, blah, blah, blah. And, and from every level in the practice, from the, the, those answering phones to the nurses, to the medical assistants, the doctors, that everyone had an incentive plan. And, and he, he educated me. There's a book out there called, um, so he, remind, he educated me about a, a book called Toxic Charity, 
from from you know giving charity to those in need um, in Africa where it can become poisonous. And the the the, the six principles they mentioned are with toxic charities. You give once and you create an appreciation. If you give twice, you create anticipation. If you give three times, you create expectation. If you give four times, you create entitlement. And if you give five times, then you create dependency. So what we have learned is that um, it's really challenging. You know, you want to be giving, you want to be generous, but um, it's human nature that you started making, expecting these things. And then when you don't have this expectation, they're very upset and they'll quit. You know, um, so it's very much a challenge on how you are generous with your staff. Um, and I'm like you, you know, it's a work in progress every year. Can I find a better system and how can I, how can I be generous, but yet not sink the battleship and um, also not create a dependency on such a, such a payment. So to clarify with open book management, it, there is a basement number for the whole company that it is net profit. So if it's under a certain net profit amount, then it's very clear. We aren't getting the bonus. I don't care if we're a quarter percentage point and everyone but one person pulled their weight enough for us to get there. We, we don't get there. And, and so that's why I chose that system because you're absolutely right. And what you just described in that, those five different steps to between appreciation and dependence is why I don't do Christmas bonus. And it's not because I, I want to be a jerk at, at the holidays. I do like bonusing my people. I just do it in different ways at times that aren't, yeah. that aren't expected because I don't want to create the expectation or otherwise to your point, it's not a bonus anymore. And I, I think this is important in running a practice. I, I think this is a very important concept. I agree with you. So, so this was one of, of the challenges that you were, that, that you find in managing personnel, evaluating them, particularly with regard to compensation and then implementing that plan of, when it's connected to financials of how they're actually paid. And you said running a business was harder than I thought it was going to be. Do you remember what you thought it was going to, was it just something vague or how did you think it was going to be when you first made the decision? Well, you know, when I made the decision to start my own practice, I, I never really wanted to run my own practice. I really had no um, lengthy education or pre-concept going into it. I, for me, it was kind of just forced into the next phase of my, of my life to do this. And I went into it pretty ignorant. I, uh, and, and, but I, I felt comfort that I would hire the right people to help me. And, I, you know, and that, did, that did help, you know, hiring people with experience, hiring people that you can trust uh, uh, helped. But um, yeah, it was uh, very, um, and looking backwards, you know, ignorance was kind of bliss, you know, going into it and just having at it. And um, we've grown to a big entity. We're now the largest or second largest in Florida, where, you know, it was just uh, 10 years ago, we were very, very small. We started this in a bad economic time. And uh, it's more of looking backwards. And uh, I had faith and courage and went into this and it, it, it's worked out. Um, but not without hard work. Did you think that the concept of hiring people and hiring good people would be it? That that was, you know, I'll hire the good people, they'll do the stuff, and then I won't have to worry about it. Was that in your periphery? 
that, that was that was the mindset, except I knew that I didn't want to be detached. I knew that even though I'm not educated in business, that I did not want to be ignorant. So for me, I, I did something unique. Um, I didn't want to say, oh, just let's hire the smart people that can do all the business and I'll stay detached as a physician. I knew that I had to keep my feet into it. I, I actually learned that because I owned a restaurant in the past. And, and I learned that if you weren't a part of the process, wow, um, it could really fall apart. When did you own a restaurant? Yeah, years ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a good story. Um, my brother is a, a classically trained French chef. And after years and years of working at the best restaurants in Potomac, Maryland, and other places, um, he went back to school and became a lawyer. It broke my heart. My, my chef brother became a lawyer, and I thought the good food would be gone. And then years after practice, he happens to be practicing law in the same town that I live in. And he called me and said, hey, Mr. Doctor, are you ready to open your restaurant? And I was like, yes, let's do this. I'm, I'm ready for my fine- you're, you're a physician at this point. You're, I'm a physician. Are, are you already in REI? You've already, already, done, you've already subspecialized? And, and I, he was looking at me as Mr. Moneybags so that I could financially support this sure. restaurant. And um, so we start, um, so he, he looks at me and he says, hey, we're, I said, okay, where are we going to start our French restaurant? And he said, we're not doing French, we're doing barbecue. I'm like, you got to be kidding. A French chef with barbecue? And he, he was right, you know, in culinary school, they teach them the need for that community and, and this, where he was looking to start the restaurant, there was a real need for barbecue. And um, that was a heck of an experience for me. It was really my first touch in business ever, you know, seeing how business was run truly um, from the outs, you know, uh, from the working business part of it. And, and wow, that restaurant industry, you know, a lot of doctors go there. It's a rough one. It's a tough one. Uh, it's a whole different conversation. But uh, the, the, your hires, your, your management, um, it's similar to managing medicine, but different. Uh, it's a whole, it's a different animal. And a lot of doctors go into that with like an ego or a pride, like they want their, their restaurant. And many of them leave licking their wounds. And I was, uh, for us, uh, it went very, very well. And um, ultimately, we, we, life changes and we couldn't manage it. So we couldn't manage it, so we sold it and did well with it. But it was a heck of an experience for me business-wise, absolutely. So you left this experience knowing that you were going to be more involved in the next business. Yeah, so the, yes, my bad. And that's where we left. So, so when I started my practice, my goal was to be more involved, like you said. And so I actually did my own billing in collections. You know, I, This was back in the paper chart method before we went to electronic medical records. And and um, I actually did my own billing and collection. I learned how to do it in the computer and how to submit uh, codes and fees and, and then how to the 30, 60, 90 day collection method. So I learned to do the billing all by myself. And then I started hiring staff to do that for me that had experience. And because I didn't want to be bamboozled. I wanted to know every facet to some degree, even if it was a little degree. And I, I think that it, did, it gave me a lot of great experience. You know arguing with insurance companies over their contracts and, and arguing with insurance companies to get fair reimbursement for something you actually did, the checks and balances involved. It, it was very educational and insightful uh, for me. And I'm, I'm glad I had that experience. And it gives more context for managing people and being able to hear their reports afterwards when you, when you have context from your own personal experience. Absolutely. 
from having done it. You mentioned Julius Farzoni, who's your business manager, and I'm, I'm acquainted with Julius, and you mentioned that he's an MBA, and I know that uh, because I'm acquainted with him, I know that he has more business experience than a lot of people in that position. Did you start off with a business manager? Did you have an office manager? What was the beginning structure? Like? Uh, I was the beginning manager. I was the beginning administrator and, and hired billing staff and clinical staff myself. I was the, the, the one doing it. Yeah. What was that experience like? I, I was fortunate I, where I, I hired, I had good hires. I had people that had experience in the industry and, and I had trust with them and, um, and uh, it was actually pretty, it wasn't that bad. You know, it, it, uh, uh, even though I didn't do the day-to-day -day as much, I did have a touch with the day-to-day -day that they did. I, uh, I felt like I could communicate well with them. And um, it, when you're small, when we were a small entity, that was easy. You know, when there were 10 of us or 12 of us. Um, but then once you get up to 50 of us, you definitely, uh, more than 20 of us, then you definitely needed us with help with management. Sure. So it was just you and staff, no, no office manager between you at that time. In the and so when did you bring on management? Was it at that 20 it's mark? Really, we re reached a level where I brought in management um, when our critical staff numbers got up to, you know, uh, to 20 ish, probably above 20. Then I, I definitely needed assistance in management. And what was that structure? Like, was that person an office manager, a practice administrator, a business manager? Yeah, it was people. Uh, initially, it was like um, it was a nurse who went back and became uh, got her MBA. So I, I hired an MBA uh, with clinical background. And then uh, as we grew bigger and bigger, you, you hired purely business paid, you know, business uh, educated staff um, that weren't clinically related. Do you have experience on talking about the difference in those levels of administration and, and management? And what I what I'm alluding to, Sam, is that when I see people often they have, let's say, an office manager and they think that that's a business manager and it's not the same thing. And, right. and, and it might not be the same thing as a practice administrator either. I believe that there's uh, that there are different levels and people. Oh, yeah, I've got somebody doing that. And that person is just doing everything that that's not in their purview so can you describe the different yeah, I, structures I think, that you played uh, with i think what i learned is um i didn't want the mom and pops situation you know you had the physician who has his wife running the practice who has no experience in business or management and i'd seen that been exposed to that setup in my prior ex work experience and it was very non-sophisticated very emotional uh, very subjective, not objective. And, you know, I'm going to hire who I like and who I don't like, you know, and so uh, I saw, I, I'm glad I never fell into that trap. And I, I believed in talent, you know, find the talent, hire the talent that uh, it's and not so much the mom and pops setup. And, um, you know, so hiring non-medical people to come in to learn medicine or clinical things for the first time as part of their business management, um, it's a, it, it, it was a good thing to do. I think it was the right thing to do for, for at least for my structure. And um, it does take a while. It's for non-clinical people. It takes them a, a year or two to really get it, get it. You know, the, the flow of the clinical flow and how that pertains to the business, financial accountability, um, you know, and, and holding uh, managers responsible and accountable. It, uh, uh, became more of a challenge. Uh, 
but, uh, but it works and um, much better than I could do as an individual or as a mom and pop setup and you know, hiring talent people with education that can do these things. But it does take a an educational phase. It takes them a few years to really understand the concept, especially clinically, uh, especially with infertility. This is kind of a, a subspecialty. It's pretty, it's not so easy and generalizable like um, I would guess uh, an OBGYN practice or a family practice practice. Extraordinarily it- complicated. There's not just one st- or a handful of stock units that you're selling exactly. between all of the different billing all of the different insurance companies, yes. now em- employer groups, uh, and, and all of the different services from ovulation induction to IVF to multi-cycle packages and all the financial people that come into play and all of the steps on the journey of the patient journey that can expedite or delay that. It's it's almost a bottomless pit. And so it, it sounds like you've, you've certainly had experience training some of the business folks to now be a part of the practice where they have not clinical experience, but at least that clinical operations in their purview. Yes. Is it easier to get business folks caught up on clinic operations or clinic clinical folks in business acumen? That's a good question. And I guess it depends on the individual. You have some people that have the aptitude and the intelligence and, and energy to from either direction, from the business side looking at clinically or the clinical side looking into the business side. It really is very individual. Um, and I've had experience with both. Um, going from clinical to business is a little easier, I think, but, uh, but it comes with baggage. For example, that nurse that, was a, that went back to school and became an administrator, um, she understood clinical really well, but, but she was also a nurse. She was a pleaser. She had those basic personality sets that are not so good on a business side of things, where I I prefer the other. I'd rather have, uh, at the level I'm at now, I'd rather have somebody coming in from the business side learning clinical. It does take takes a while. It takes a long time. It's it's not a quick learn. Um, But I'd rather, I I prefer that angle uh, than I do from the clinical end. I want to make a, a comment about the, the reason why you chose that. You didn't want to just have the mom and pop where it's someone's spouse running one facet of the business. And I, I have to comment. I see that beyond the mom and pops. I'm seeing that with some of these networks now, particularly some of the ones that are starting. It's like that's someone's spouse that's in that seat. And I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean, I, I, I don't know enough of it to judge, but there, I assume there's good and bad in that. Uh, it just depends on the individual, I suppose. But uh, but I haven't seen many mom and pops get very big. So. I, I, I just, I, I really have to believe in someone's ability to, for me to have, at least in my own, in, in my own company, for them to be able to fire their anyone. And right. I, I don't say that, I don't say that easily. I don't like firing people. It's we're, we're going in a direction as an organization and have done a really good job in vetting to where it, it hasn't happened too much, but it does happen. It's part of business. And I think that when you have a spouse or a sibling or, or anything else involved, that it makes it really difficult to, uh, that just adds something else that that person has to consider before they can make that business decision. I agree. And I had my brother as the producer of this podcast when we first started, and he was late twice on deadlines. And I fired him in front of everybody just to set 
an example. My own, my own brother no longer produces this podcast. That's strong. That's very hard. Well, and, and so there's emotion with that. There, there is some emotion. Um, and it's one thing when it's, you know, an hourly audio engineering position. I think it's another thing when it's someone that I owns equity in a group that uh, has a management role. I think that that's all the more Absolutely. difficult. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice or Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just, just a, a couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You talked when you were making this, this decision in the first place to go this route of the independently owned practice as opposed to the three of the other four channels. When you were in uh, a larger network group, you felt like you, it's like, well, there's less money in, in this arrangement and there's less autonomy. So what is the benefit for someone in a larger network group if there's, if there's sometimes less money and there's almost no. certainly less autonomy? I think it's a good question. I think being a member of a large um, network, there's security, you know, they're less likely to um, have uh, patient flow interrupted, I suppose. So I think there's more job security. Um, you know, they're this biggest, bigger entity with extra staff, extra personnel are constantly working on things that you can't touch on a, on a weekly or daily basis on contracts or or knowing what's going on. So I, I think there's probably some security in a larger group uh, of longevity maybe, um, at least for the, man, the the managing partner. And there's probably, you know, they, they would always sell those situations saying that, oh, we're gonna have you better educated. We're gonna have 
uh, podcasts or seminars uh, amongst our own people and keep everybody more educated than you would if you were a smaller entity. I'm not sure if I quite believe that. I don't. I actually don't believe that from the entities that I've seen. I haven't seen that to be true. Where you know, being part of a bigger network, you have more ability to interact with uh, uh, as a clinician, as a physician, uh, with others that somehow make you a better doctor or a better group. I, I have yet to see that in on the level of intra, our reproductive endocrinology and infertility or OBGYN. How do you make up for that? As uh, now you have colleagues that work with you in your group, but you you didn't in the beginning, and so how do you make up for that when you don't? Independently, I think we do have a little more um, interaction, and if we go to conferences, there is more sharing. Where when you're in a large group, I think it gets a little more selfish, where you're not as sharing or team team Biden team bound together. Um, so I think actually, from my experience, I've actually learned more from my colleagues in a in an independent setting than I have in a, um, a group setting. I, w- I will say that I do see at least some level of where, I, and th- I'm not speaking to the, the clinical side, so I, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. I think there's lots of people throughout the field that, that share with their colleagues, particularly on the clinical side. But I can say, at least on the business side, that there are so many people that are a part of larger groups that have sold equity, and they can't talk about anything, Sam. They, they, they can't say, they can't go to uh, peer meetings that I've hosted. They can't, you know, jump on a Zoom call to talk about. So sometimes they can't even come on the podcast. And, and I, I am not here to, to promote one or the other. I think there's pros and cons for independent. I think there's pros and cons for being part of equity. It's, that's just one that I would consider. And I know for myself that I don't ever want somebody to tell me what podcast I can and and can't yeah. go on and what, what I can and can't talk about. I know there's plenty of NDAs and plenty of things that people could sign, even if they are independent, that would bind them to a similar arrangement. That's I could definitely I see that. I could definitely see that uh, where they're a little more controlling. The larger groups are a little more controlling with any information coming from that group. Yeah. So I, I think one advantage, though, I do, so at risk of running networks through the mud, because I, I do have many associates that work at those networks and I feel very good about those people at risk of, of disparaging them. I, I will give the plug that uh, I think that a lot of the things that you talked about are things that a lot of physicians don't want to learn and don't have any business learning with regard to human resources, compensation, billing structure, uh, location purchases, location expansion. Um, and I think that that is much left much better left to uh, a front office group or those physicians that are a a good part of the group. And it's a great opportunity for some people to buy in sometimes and and not have to do any of that stuff. And you sort of alluded to that when you were talking about the personality type. So what, what do you think, what personality type is required to not just be successful at going off on one's own, but to actually enjoy it? You know, it's a good question. And I think it's important. My administrator, Julius, has made that very clear to me. And we've brought in consultants to to do personality testing and to educate our staff on, you know, not only uh, for interactions between staff, but also staff to patient. And um, I'm really seeing, um, I I really believe that that's important. And I'm not an expert at it yet. I I, I see the utility in it. And I, I think it's something that I have missed for years. Um, but there, there are different personalities. We, there's like four different subsets of personalities, at least from the, the, the one genre that we buy into with the, the, our consultant. 
there's four different personality styles and there's variations of that and, and uh, how to interact with the different personality styles and who, uh, who's good at management, who would not be good at management. I, um, we, we hope to do this with our hires more so, and we have been, and we've had good management along this way. And um, I'm seeing the power in that. I, I, I'm a believer. I, I think that's, uh, I think it's something that we're new at, and I think it uh, is powerful, and I think it's going to bring good things. Do you remember which personality test service you use at Myers-Briggs or Colby or DISC? I think it's DISC is what we, we were using, yeah. I played around with each of those for a while. I don't really believe my, this is my personal experience. I don't believe it matters which one you choose as long as you understand it and you're using it as the source of truth for the the whole organization by basis of comparison. I believe that. I I, I, but I think that's a great piece of advice for the younger associates listening and for the fellows that when you're thinking about what you want to do, take one of those tests. Just take, I don't care if it's DISC, I don't care if it's Myers-Briggs, maybe not StrengthsFinder, but even then, any one of those tests, you could take it and it will give you a little bit better insight as to, to what you might be suited for. So I think you know, for physicians, most of us are exposed to it. I remember in medical school, most of us had to go through a Myers-Briggs or and we all kind of laughed about it. You know, we all thought it was kind of silly and it's kind of giving you a label and it wasn't well accepted. It just kind of, I don't know. You didn't want people judging you, I suppose. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I can remember med school having that and um, really giving it, zero, everyone gave it zero energy or thought. And um, I've come around completely the other way. I, I've been made to believe that uh, I really think there's a lot of strength and power in that. I think that's a, a great idea for those considering the next phase of their career. And speaking of next phases of career, I'm not a private equity guy, but I know the optics of a group like yours. You're one of the largest in a very large state, in a non-mandated state, in a state that's growing, in cities that are growing. You got colleagues and you got a good structure. I know that you're getting the calls and you haven't taken them yet, apparently. Why not? Uh, it's a good question. Um, we, we, we've been approached, you know, I think in the last, you know, five, eight years, you know, the economy has been doing well and um, there's a lot of money on the sidelines, a lot of equity firms. Uh, it's really a process where uh, um, a lot of medical practices are getting evaluated and, and being shot. And um, we've been exposed from a few um, and um I think it's it's worked well. I think it's worked fairly well. I'm guessing on the OBGYN level, more of it's a larger system, OBGYN networks. Um, on this subspecialty level, uh, with reproductive endocrinology and fertility, uh, there's been a few like you know Shady Grove and a few others um, out of the West Coast. At least the East Coast system kind of faltered and kind of fell apart. They're trying to reorganize, and I don't know so much about the Western uh, uh, groups, um, but. I, I, it doesn't seem to be mainstream yet, at least it's throughout the United States. I have plenty of, it's a very small world in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And not, I'd say the minority of us are in these large groups. And um, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge in that what we do is very specific. And it takes the other, ch- one of the challenges for us is it takes a lot of money to operate. And it can, I think you'd be challenged to find uh, an entity that costs as much money to run before profits made. And that's why this doesn't work well in academia. And I'm going to segue into that a little bit. 
you know, for, let me give you the example of a, a, a university infertility program. Well, you have a chairman, business-wise, you have a chairman, a clinical person that's an OBGYN doctor, that's the chairman of their department, and they have infertility as one of their subspecialties they have to pay for. They also have maternal fetal medicine, GYN oncology, and generalists. And uh, your generalist, you know, to run them, it may cost $2 to make a dollar. And for GYN oncology, it might be, you have to make $3 to make a dollar in profit. But in reproductive infertility, eh, you got to generate probably $8 to make a dollar. So there's, it costs a lot, it's a lot of revenue to make some profit. And generally speaking, the chairman who determines the allotment of money is a generalist that doesn't quite understand why do we need that much money to run this operation? Why do we need that embryologist that costs $200,000 a year or, or the, all these extra nurses that the infertility doctors need where the other specialties don't? It's a very, so it usually fails. So then that chairman who needs to allocate resources to that department, they won't do it. So then infertility practices in academia fail typically because of this. And, and my, my, they won't get, get them the, neck, the new incubator or the, a few more new ultrasound machines or the, the extra two nurses they need or the extra embryologists they need to grow that program. So there's too many chiefs and that don't have the same buy-in. And so, so that's why in academia, reproductive endocrinology and infertility usually fails. Now, the same problem is with the equity firms. Hey, they're there to make a buck. They need to make a dollar. They got to show their shareholders that they've made some profit off this purchase. And man, again, it takes a lot of resources to make that buck. So they, so I, I, um, and I think that's why it hasn't become so widespread as it is with general practices like a pain management practice or a OBGYN practice. Uh, we're a pretty complex animal to manage. And, and I think it is coming. I think there, you know, as long as the economy keeps rolling and there's a lot of money out there that where practices can be bought, I think more and more will buy into this concept, but um, we're pretty, I think it's because we're complicated. And, and, I, and I'm not saying that from an egotistical way. I really, really generally believe that, uh, that we are one of the more complicated areas of medicine that there is. Uh, it seems to be that way from my perspective. It's why I'm constantly viewing. So I'm assuming that we're talking about net profitability. If we're talking about $1 yes. to, to $8 and we're talking about 12.5% net profitability. Exactly. Net profit. and, and so I think someone looks at that and they think, well, damn, Dr. Brown, that's, that's why I don't want to start my own group because I would rather let somebody else worry about that. Just take my salary and maybe I can do much better than that. And I can leverage systems. I can leverage people and we can, we can build an economy of scale where we can do much better than that, but maybe, maybe I can't, that's not a big margin for me to start with. And so what do you view as the future of independent REI practice? I think it will um, always exist. I think there'll always be larger and smaller practices. Um, just the nature of our patient, the nature of people who per, per use us, um, our consumers, they're very, it's an interesting consumer. It's a very different consumer. Uh, it's very emotional. If a patient doesn't have success at one organization, we call them ping pongers. They'll go from one office to the next office and good God, they don't have success on their first try somewhere else. They're going to the third place. Our patients, unlike any other area of medicine, our patients jump from facility to facility. So there'll always be opportunity for more practices, small independent practices, larger practices. I don't see a change. Looking into the future, I don't have a good gander. Um, 
I think it's going to stay the way it is for a while. For at least, I would guess for the next decade that there'll still be 30% equity-owned practices and 70% independent or 50% independent and 20% academic. I think I'd be surprised. It'll be interesting that when we hit the 50% mark, that 50% of practices are in owned by equity firms. That'll be interesting for me to even forecast. But I. I don't see that in the next 10 years, maybe even 20 years. Is, is there any reason you don't see it besides the profitability dynamic that we talked about? From what I gather, um, the profitability is just not, for the amount of expense, the profitability is not that great to be attractive for the equity firms to want to buy us. Like a pain management practice, it doesn't take a lot of resources. They're paying them large monies to buy their practice. These equity firms are buying them. And paying a lot, of, a lot of money. For example, I know an independent pain management physician who sold his practice, he and another uh, controlling partner, they made about $14 million. And they're still employed there and they, they do very well. But the reimbursement's wonderful for their services and, and their overhead cost is, is, in my mind, not so bad. We're the opposite. You know, I, I, I think, uh, you, know, you know, we got... So if, again, you got to spend ten dollars or two dollars to make a net of one, where we're spent. You have to spend eight dollars in our industry to make a net profit of one dollar. Uh, they don't. The, the large firms they they see that they're smart. They they see how complicated it is, and they're not that interested in, in uh, most of them in, in working that. I, I I wonder, Sam. I see what I see what you're saying, and I don't disagree. It it could be that case, but I also see that 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 same dynamic being used to say, you know what, that's why you've got to buy in with us because we're the ones that can deliver the economies of scale to reduce that overhead. Because if you're all off on your own, then your overhead is going to be higher. But with us, we can negotiate it down. And I know that overhead is a big point of frustration for practice owners that I often hear people describe everyone just wants a piece of our pie. And the pie is not the pie isn't that getting that much bigger for us, but everybody taking a slice is, is just more and more. And I so makes, see that. I think the one thing that makes us unique is that we have a cash product. Unlike for how these, long though? We're that, that, well, that's the, that's the point where once, if it's 50, 50 now, let's say it's 50% insurance contract reimbursement versus 50% cash. You, you're right. If eventually if it becomes 80% insurance re, uh, reimbursement, I can see more throwing in the towel and allowing equity firms to deal with economies of scale to make it easier for them. But the, I think the cash is what keeps the independent alive. I think, you know, if they can just up their prices to their competitor and still do well, I, I think that keeps them, uh, gives them strength to stay independent. And so what about someone that wants to that say, okay, I, uh, I'm more interested in the independent side, but I don't want to start from zero. I want to buy in with some someone else, and especially because there are a lot of baby boomer docs in their early to late 60s right now that are thinking of there's I would say a quarter of the people listening to this show are probably on the fence if they want to retire in the next five years or not. And and then the other quarter of people in the show are people that are getting in into those groups. So what should those people consider if they if they were to join a group like yours, let's say, uh, should they start off as an associate? Is that is that a good place to end as well? Is that you know what I'm I'm good here? Should should everyone that's joining a private group try to go for partnership eventually what are what's your perspective on that yeah it's interesting I, 
especially for the older doctors, the older reproductive endocrinologists, um, you know, they, they want to work five or 10 years. And, and, um, and by the way, that's where you see the equity firms come in and swoop those practices up. The senescent programs, they're ready to throw that, that older doctor is ready to throw the towel in. They're more likely to sell to the large equity firms for sure. And it makes sense. I mean, they're in the last five years of their practice or 10 years and they're not going to get what they want out of their practice typically, but they sell it. So having the equity firm come in and give them some money, it's, it's kind of a smart way to go. Um, your younger age docs, though, they, 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 want, they want the ability to make more profit. They, they, they want the ability to make a, a better income than the average income they're seeing. Looking at this differently, like if you're, if you're that doctor and you're, you have five or 10 years left and I'm fortunate, I have a good experience with this. We have a lot of doctors living in Florida. We have a lot of people who want to retire here. So we have a lot of older doctors that are leaving their practices up north and they want a part-time or a full-time job in Florida. And we've been very successful in hiring these physicians. Um, they've been great. We give them a strong contract. We, it's easy to put in some type of partnership. Absolutely. Depends on what type of partnership we're talking about. Full equity owner versus... Um, profit sharing type partnership. It just depends on what type of partnership we're discussing. But if they have five years left and they, they're not anting in, nobody's gonna sell them their practice. Richard Scott has a lot of interesting stories about this where people would wanna to try to buy his practice and when they would you know, value their practices and for them to buy in, you can't get that. Nobody can raise that kind of money to really truly become an equity owner. So it just depends on how you define the partnership. I think it's a really good opportunity for those docs. I think they still make great money. Um, they can make great salaries and bonuses and depends on how you structure their partnership. Um, I think those doctors are sitting in, in a great position to do well before they retire. We, we have a gentleman that's working with us now. It's in his, his low seventies and he's ready to retire and he's, he's done really well. Um, I, uh, I'm pretty proud of the way he structured his career, you know, looking back. Yeah. What would it take for you, Sam? I'm putting myself in the position of a of a fellow, and I'm also thinking that when I see a lot of relationships break up, it's very often associates at the two to two and a half year mark, and the associate says, "Okay, I'm ready to buy in." Partner says, "No, you're not." And whatever's happening there, I'm not in most of those conversations, yeah. so I don't yeah. know what's happening. But I can tell you, it's one person had one set of expectations, another party had another set of expectations and they weren't agreed to enough. They weren't agreed upon explicitly enough and they weren't reviewed ad nauseum. And I always tell people, I don't care if you're getting annoyed with each other in the negotiation process because you're just repeating things. Do it then as opposed to two years down the line after you both have much more sunk cost. And so if, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, someone leaving fellowship right now and I'm, I want to move to Orlando because I've got family down there and I'm a go-getter, Dr. Brown. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build your practice so big and I'm going to see so many patients and I want to buy into partnership. How do you sit with me and say, okay, Dr. Jones, this is how we're going to agree to it or not? I think you approach that question, Griffin, perfectly. It's, it's about communicating up front. And and, and generally speaking, the fellows will come out and they will say, just like you said, hey, I'm going to grow this practice. I need to own part of this. I'm going to be a part of your explosive growth and success. And, you know, explaining the different partnerships was never really done to me at any practice I've ever been a part of. I think we do a fair job of it. We have a really good communicating staff here. And 
Our administrator does a good job of explaining. I try to explain. Uh, the fellows have never been exposed to this before. They don't know business. They're not business school uh, graduates. Um, and, you know, when, when somebody owns an entity, what does that mean? Like when this company owns this, um, has put millions of dollars into this practice, what, what, how is it fair for um, somebody coming in to, uh, to how, how, do you, how do you sell that to them? How, do you, how can you let them buy into it over time? We, we've learned personally to be very creative about it and we're very open-minded to all forms of partnership and ownership. Um, but when the, when the fellows generally see the numbers, when they actually get this education, generally by us or my administrator, they're like, whoa, I had no idea, Dr. Brown, that you, know, you actually had to put $4 million into that building and somehow I got to buy, okay, if I want to be a 50% owner, I got to buy two, $2 million of that $4 million building. And then you could structure that over time, over years. And one of the best groups for this is Dr. John Schnorr of Charleston, South Carolina is a great business mind, great reproductive endocrinology, fertility mind. They had a nice structure where it was a seven-year buy-in over time. There's ways to do these things. Is that new fellow starting a practice willing to invest over time? You can't get loans for that. Nobody's worth, you know, you go to the bank. I actually, I was one of, in one of my previous experiences, I was offered to become a partner. Um, I was making, I'll, I'll be honest, I was making uh, $300,000 a year. And to and, and they showed me the numbers in a real logical, mature sense. They said, you know, it's going to cost you uh, somewhere around $5 million to become it as a 50% owner. You can't get that money unless you're independently wealthy. Actually, I had a partner that went to a relative and got the money and then um, tried to buy in and it didn't work. And it was just the personality of this, this situation. It didn't work well. There, uh, it wasn't, the partnership wasn't structured well. But um, so it costs a lot of money to set up a practice. And then, then that fellow thinks, well, I could just start my own practice and just start from scratch and hey, um, more power to you. Uh, I mean, there's non-competes, you know, it's, it is a, it's not like family practice. It's not like our call radius is only 20, a 20 mile radius. You know, our call radius is typically two to three hours because we're a subspecialty. So I didn't answer your question, but all these complexities piled together, um, you, you, you answered it just at what, when do you have, and the, by the way, the phenomenon that Dr. Brown is describing is called trapped equity. There's trapped equity in the practice because the buyer can't afford what it's worth to the seller. And, and, and so you, you did a answer the question, but when do you have that, com do you have that it, conversation before they even become an associate? It's definitely as they come, as they're coming in, for sure, before they sign that original contract being as clear and as honest as possible, trying to explain all these situations and different possibilities. To, do, do they want to be a, an equity owner? Do they want to be a part, uh, a profit sharing partner? It, uh, there's all kinds of ways to define these partnerships. Absolutely. Just, what else, what else yeah. are you looking for to, to qualify for partnership besides the money required to buy? Is there a certain amount of volumes, other responsibilities taken at the office? What else should people delineate before they agree to go into partnership with each other? Yeah, I, I think, you know, just as a quick answer, I think um, they got to be productive. You know, can they, you know, I don't think you can know that coming in. And I think it's okay to educate them coming in saying, hey, you know, we're going to see how over the next three to four years, five years, whatever, can you produce or not? And I, you know, so I don't know if buying initially coming in is the, the, the wise way to do it. Um, 
that physically just need, I don't, what's the odds that that individual is truly going to be productive or not? And I've definitely learned that with hires. You have people that Julius has quoted this, you know, there's rainmakers and there's busy bees. So, and I don't think you know what kind of doctor you are until you've been out. Like, are you, can you really generate? Are you really good at just being a busy bee and making it happen? What's already there. So I, I think, I don't think any of us know. We all think we're going to be rainmakers when we come out of training. And, but are, are, with your personality set, are you a rainmaker or are you a busy bee? And both are needed, both are necessary. So, but if they can't produce and they want to buy in, it doesn't, they can't really buy in. So. Can one elucidate what a rainmaker is in numbers and key performance indicators in yeah. the beginning so that they're not having the conversation of, yes. hey, uh, I was a rainmaker. No, you were a busy bee. Well, we, we have different definitions. Can that right. definition be established in the beginning with numbers? If you hit these, you know, maybe it's this number of volumes, maybe it's this number of procedures, this number of new patients per week, like, per month. I, I totally agree. And like for us, we actually, we, we, um, we calculate that quarterly, you know, what, from the their new the new patients coming in under that physician, what do they ultimately produce? And even if the other doctors are seeing them, that originating doctor gets credit for who who came up with the treatment plan. So that's how we determine rainmakers versus busy bees, and we make it pretty clear they they know uh, and when they're not producing, we're, they're on a quarterly basis. They're educated on what they've done. And we have some episodes that fellows really stick out you know we've done a uh, hundred episodes and there's a couple that when i meet fellows they say I, I really like this episode i really like this particular episode i think this will be one of them would you be awesome. okay would you be okay with fellows reaching out to you if they if they we've listen it. We're, we're a very honest hard-working group and we want smart-minded strong-backed you know physicians to join this entity this entity we hope it's going to last for 100 years you know this isn't just about my tenure at brown fertility this is, uh, we plan for this structure to be uh, ongoing and not be a thumb of senescent program and be, um, be here hundred years from now. So we love strong fellows that would be interested in your educational services. And we would love to, to talk to them about um, uh, these things. I think that's an excellent place to conclude. Dr. Sam Brown, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks Griffin, anytime. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.